This evening we will return to the book of Esther, picking up in chapter 6, verse 14, where we left off, and reading through the end of chapter 7. I've told you all before that Michelle is the voice of the people. She told me I got a little rambly at the end this morning. I trust God can work through my rambles. But if He didn't work, I'm sorry. There was a point to looking at the certainty of the promises that God has given us. I think my rambles might have distracted us from that. If we are certain of what God has done for us, then we have all the more confidence to rely on God in what we do. Everything that we do. So often in life, and especially in matters of faith, we are held back by fear of who we are that we would fail, instead of going forward in confidence of who God is. And it's with that thought that I want to pick up. What are we to do living in a world where we are serving God. We are the people called by God. We are those that are serving Him. While the world might not live by the laws that we have inscribed upon our heart, and so we've been transformed, we have a heart of stone that's been taken out of us and been replaced with a stone of flesh, a heart of flesh, what are we to do? And this is ultimately the big question in Esther. As we look at what happened in the past, how might we apply it today? I don't think that everything in the book of Esther is prescriptive. That is to say, I don't think everything in the book of Esther, because it's a historical book, I don't think that everything tells us as an example of what we are to do. But there's definitely a principle that could be drawn out, how we can glorify God whenever we are, might even say, on fire for the Lord. Is that an antiquated term? Is it okay if I say that, being on fire for the Lord? All right. It might be antiquated, but it sounds, seems like you're okay with it. How are we to live in a world that isn't on fire for the Lord? As Mordecai goes home to mourn, the same way that the Jews mourned when this edict went out that he had drafted and had sent out with the king's signet ring, we pick up in verse 14 where the Bible says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then, king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallow that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Looking at this passage, I really want to drive something home. The time to respond to God is now. The time to act on God's promises is now. It doesn't matter what day or time or place that we are standing in, I can say with confidence that the right time to act is now. We might be talking about five years from now. I'll tell you then is just as good, good a time as now. Because in the future you'll say now. Are you following me? That doesn't make any sense at all. Let me clarify what I'm trying to say. It's always now. It's always now. The right time to respond to God is always now. Sometimes we run away from responding to God and our, our fears and our insecurities or, or we don't act on things because we're, we're worried about the wrong things like we discussed this morning. Our, our fear is set on pleasing man or receiving our reward now instead of receiving our reward in heaven according to God's timing. And what do we find from Mordecai? But when he received his reward late, that that was the right time for him to receive his reward because look what came from it. Look what came from it. As we read on in the passage tonight, we find that King Ahasuerus was particularly prepared to hear what Esther had to say to him. The right time to respond to God, to act in what He is compelling you to do, what burden has been laid on your heart, is right now. Let me clarify something real fast. This morning I said that there were four of these dinners with Esther, the queen. I went back and counted I was wrong. It was actually three. This is the third one. And no one had to tell me that I got it wrong. So I appreciate you letting that go, but, but I was wrong. It's three. Here's the third one. Even though Esther waited in all of these occurrences, I believe that in each instance that she invited the king and Haman to dinner, she was ready. She responded to God by preparing her heart, being ready to act whenever God let the circumstances line up with when she needed to. She was ready, but she waited. She was ready, but she listened. She was ready, and when the time came, in chapter 7 of Esther, she acted. The time came that she saw Mordecai being led through the streets. She saw circumstances I'm hesitant to use this term because it's, it's associated with astronomy, which ultimately is, is, uh, is wicked and evil and Christians should not practice it. But she saw the stars lining up in her favor. Right? 
She saw the king's heart being softened towards the Jewish people and she uses this as an opportunity. She was ready all along, but when the time came, when now came, she acted and she told the king, I want reprieve for my people because we have been sold. You guys, it's possible to miss a moment. It's possible to miss a moment. Haman was sitting at home complaining to his friends and his wife and the eunuchs had to come and gather him. There is no waiting. When God acts, if we're living lives obedient to God, part of obedience is doing what we're told when we're told and with a good attitude. We can't put off God. There's larger implications of that, and actually the text, I think, suggests those larger ones, but let us just sit in this for a moment. We cannot put off God. How many people do you think have their hearts convicted by the gospel the first time that they hear it, when they realize that I really am a sinner, I really do want Jesus to save me, and they don't respond? We were discussing a moment ago during our prayer time a young woman who, who knows these things, knows that she needs a Savior, but, but she doesn't quite get it enough to know what she's being saved from. Am I right in saying that's the missing element? Maybe I'm a little wrong there. That's all right. <clears throat> it's just missing element. And we're waiting for these pieces to click. And, and we have confidence that the one that's going to make these pieces click is God. You know what obedience looks like when you don't have all the pieces? Still saying, I want to be saved. Hey, we might not be there yet. God might still be working. We're going to trust God and and we're going to say with confidence, you know, continue to seek Him. That's the right way to respond. That's obedience in the moment. That's trusting God and calling people into salvation. The king's heart in Esther chapter 7, is precariously and particularly prepared to have compassion on the Jews after honoring Mordecai. If Esther would have missed this moment, it would have been devastating, and I believe this would have been a different story being written. I say that it was precarious. Precarious means that it was dependent on chance. Well, we don't really much believe in chance after reading Esther, do we? We believe that there's a sovereign God that holds all things in accord in such chance that He would stay up at night and that He would read um, the particular section in the Chronicles or the history that Mordecai had saved his life, that's a precarious situation. But it led to a particular heart softening that caused him to be moved to honor Mordecai. Let's not miss our moment. Let's not miss the moments in life. So often, as Christians, we're all called by God to share the gospel. And when I say that, I think oftentimes what we think about in sharing the gospel is going up to a stranger and telling them that in the beginning God created you because He loved you and He knew you before you were even formed. But our sin created separation and alienation between us and God. In fact, the problem with sin is that it always separates us from God's holiness and there's nothing that we can do to cover up our sin that it will always be there. There's no amount of good works that can get rid of it. 
But God, because He loves us, had a plan from the beginning when He created us to redeem us from this. And that plan was a son so that all who believe in Him, because Jesus Christ is going to pay for that penalty of sin, so that anyone that believes in Him, everyone that believes in Him, will have everlasting life. And then we walk away and they either respond or they don't. But in reality, sharing the gospel is much more personal than that. Most of the time when you walk up to a stranger, if you share the gospel with them, they nod their head. They say, yes, I've heard it before. Do you know when the time to share the gospel is? When people are broken. When people are put into situations of crisis that they recognize that they need something bigger than themselves. And you can show them, you can point them to the one who has been there all along. Why do we fail in sharing the gospel? I believe because we're afraid to go into these dark places with people. You guys recognize that this is purely my opinion. This is purely commentary on the state of affairs, right? I really believe that we are afraid to get stuck in the messiness of ministry. Do you know what it's like to look at somebody as they're looking at you and they say, I'm ready to die. You know what our natural reaction is when somebody says that? Oh, you don't mean that. It's all going to be okay. And we walk away. Can I encourage you to let life get messy? It's supposed to be messy. Our lives are messy. If you really want to have an impact for the kingdom, you've got to be willing to get in the messiness of someone else's life and to let them see the messiness of your own life. And that's our opportunity to share. Those are the moments that we let slip by because we are afraid of talking about things that are difficult. more likely to be in crisis when people's hearts are softened and open to God, that change will actually occur, not when we get to just blurt out indiscriminately what our hope is. The hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, says, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. When we sing that, if we mean it, that is the hope that we share. This is the command in 2 Peter when it says that we are to always be willing to provide an answer or a response for the hope that is in us. If you don't like hymns, let me quote Hamilton. The problem is, I got a lot of brains but no polish. I got a lot of holler. I got a holler just to be heard. I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. We let our shot slip by too often because we're afraid of what polite looks like, because we're afraid to go where we haven't seen anyone go before. It's okay to be scrappy. It's okay to be flawed. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's not okay to miss your shot. God appoints the time and the season do we respond to it every time. Are we committed to it? Are we ready like Esther, making opportunities to be there when crisis falls? Let's not look at this as a one-sided coin, though, because there is balance. The time is now. The time is always now. But sometimes there is wisdom in accepting that God has called us to wait. 
This isn't a question about the gospel. The question to respond to the gospel is always now, but sometimes the question in seeking God's leadership is sometimes to say, God, let me know when to move. I'm ready when you say go. When I hear the cavalry yell charge, I'll be in with the midst of them. There's wisdom in waiting for God's prompting, for waiting while we are ready. In fact, this is our command for today. We wait with our shoes on, ready to go for Christ. Let me say, though, wisdom applied to responding to God in our hearts. There's absolutely no circumstance when there's no circumstance inhibiting us. When we are the only obstacle that stands before us in obedience to God, the time to respond is always now. Spent a lot of time on that first point. Let's keep moving. The time to respond is now. Second, repentance is necessary. Look at verses 7 and 8 for a moment. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. I want you to think about what repentance is. I think that word's maybe become a little antiquated as well. Repentance is necessary in order to be a Christian. Repentance is a part of what we say is required in order to accept the gospel in our hearts and to move forward. Repentance is always necessary when we are faced with atrocity, not just in our world, but in ourselves. The problem is, I believe we've really missed what repentance is. In looking at the example of Haman, I think we've defined it more by how Haman responds. Does he not repent? He says he begs for his life from Queen Esther. He saw that harm was determined against him. And he asked that it would not fall upon him. That is insincere repentance. He apologizes begging for his life. He falls on his face on the couch that Esther is sitting on. This is still insincere repentance. And my fear, my fear, that Christians today have accepted an insincere repentance because they have heard what is coming. They have heard that the judgment of Christ is upon us. They've heard of the realities of hell. That it's not just a place chalked up to make children obey their parents, but it is an eternal destination that everyone deserves to go to. Deserves. I believe they fall on their face and they ask with everything that they possibly can, with all earnestness, with everything that they've got, to say, I definitely don't want that. If we accept that as repentance, we are missing the mark. Responding because we see harm. Responding to convince somebody else that we're good enough to be a part of their club. Falling on the couch even making a dramatic scene, even responding with hysterics. These are insincere marks of repentance. Because repentance has a second definition. Now, when I say that's actually a wrong way to say it. Repentance is a two-part definition. It's not just admitting that what we were doing was wrong, but it's also turning away from it. This is a heart issue. 
Real repentance admits that we do not deserve our life. You want to see someone truly repenting? It's someone that can say with all the confidence of God behind them that I deserve hell. That's the truth. I deserve to go to hell. It's not just a bad place that I wind up in. I literally deserve it because I am a sinner in the eyes of God. You miss out on that, you miss out on what the gospel is. If you're not preaching that, you're not preaching the gospel. I deserve hell. But listen, dying is easy. Just to say that I deserve to die, that's easy. I'll keep quoting Hamilton because I was listening to her. Dying is easy, living is harder. Repentance isn't just confessing that our wickedness is real. It is turning around and living for Christ. Fire insurance insurance repentance is only one example of saving ourselves. Remember last week we said if you is what you was, you ain't. If you save yourself, you ain't. Fire insurance repentance is an example of trying to save yourself by putting on a show of faith and not actually seeking God. If we start in a position where we say, I deserve this, and we marvel at the fact that through God's grace, through God's mercy, we do not receive it, and by His grace, we have heaven to look forward to. That is a marvel. That we should never stop taking Wait, we should never start taking for granted. Unfortunately, we do. Real repentance doesn't require convincing because it, it produces genuine contrition, not crocodile tears, but a real heart that recognizes and sees ourselves from the perspective of God. Let me illustrate what I mean by crocodile tears. Both of my kids are going through a season where they are not obeying the way that they used to. I used to think that I had the best children in the world, and I have come to the realization that I am like every other parent on this planet, and I have no control over my life. I used to be able to say obey to my kids, and I knew that was the cue. If I said obey, they would do it, and now they don't. Now what they wait for is go to timeout. And as soon as I say go to time out, here's what they do. Oh, no. Okay, I want to do it right away. So we've been having this conversation a lot. No throwing toys in the house. They just throw one toy. Go to time out. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, go to time out. Daddy, I said I'm sorry. How do you respond to that? Doesn't I'm sorry make it better? I mean, even like we're talking to children, not adults, right? So I'm sorry makes it better, doesn't it? No, we still have to explain that even though that you said that you were sorry, there are still consequences because if you hit somebody, even if you say sorry, their face still hurts. While God's grace is great enough to remove the, consequen- the eternal consequences of our failings, that does not mean that we are excused from the temporal consequences of our actions. The way that we act has consequences. And those consequences don't go away no matter how sorry you are. And if you were really sorry, you'd take the punishment. 
Because if you're really sorry, that means you really believe that what you did warrants the punishment. I remember as I was a tough little kid. I was a, I, I rag on my parents a whole lot and I give them a hard time. But guys, just looking back, I cannot imagine raising me. And if Charlotte is anything like me, it's going to be bad. I was the kid that would do something. I remember, <laughs> there's a video. My brother made me mad. So I hit him with a snow shovel. And I threw my hands up and I just went to time out on my own. I was okay with hitting him. I was okay with doing the time. Oh, it doesn't mean I was really sorry. <laughs> but you get the point. I'm sorry doesn't always remove the consequences of our actions. And we see Haman's motivation. This is what I'm trying to draw out. Haman's motivation, his fake crocodile tears, his insincere confession, his insincere response. He begs for his life. This is the same thing that we see for Saul whenever he pleads with Samuel. And he says, Samuel, is it Samuel? No, yeah, Samuel. Samuel, I know that I didn't do what God told me to do. But hey, listen, if you could just let me save face in front of the rest of the Israelites, that'd be great. Don't let them know that God has left me. A truly contrite heart says, I accept what's coming to me. Put that in the context of the gospel. Are you reckoned enough with your sinfulness to say, I deserve hell? Because it's only when we get to that place when we can say, I deserve hell, that we can truly understand the magnitude of God's grace. We rob ourselves of being able to worship God with a pure, genuinely contrite heart and recognizing all that he has done for him, for us. And he's done it for his glory. It's a marvel. Too often we accept crocodile tears like Haman and we give people grace that they've not actually sought after. Not that grace is anything that we deserve or earn. Don't get that confused. Moving past that, middle of verse 8, the king walks in as Haman's falling in hysteric on the couch. And the king says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The time to respond is now. Repentance is necessary. And finally, judgment is coming. We don't like to talk about this. Baptists used to talk about it more. We don't like to talk about the judgment that is coming. King Ahasuerus by no means is is what I would consider a righteous king or even a king that I would like to see in authority today. But he's used almost allegorically, almost like, a, almost like a mirror in this narrative that allows us to see God. So as we read in this narrative, King Ahasuerus and the authority that he carries, we almost see a picture of the divine. And here's what I mean by that. As he comes in, there is no hiding that his 
Contrition is fake. The king's eunuch put a bag on Haman's face. The king declares he is condemned to death. And he is hanged. By the way, let's pause for a second for a moment of levity that none of you will appreciate, but I I do enjoy this. I had to look this up. I thought the past tense of to hang something was hung. So you... You, if, you, if you hang something on a wall, it's hung. But if you hang a person, they're hanged. So I didn't know that. So he, he's not hung, he's hanged. It's, but I'll still probably say that he was hung anyways. But um, he's, he, he's hanged. What's all this mean? There's coming a day when we will stand before God. We call this the great white throne judgment because it's described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, when John says that I saw a great white throne. Let me read the full passage. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. First thing that we should know about the great white throne judgment, first of all, that it is certainly coming. Second, that it is imminently coming. And uh, those, are, those are the same thing, aren't they? Do you think I want you to know that it's coming? I'd say it a third time, but I think you catch a point. What does it mean? that the presence of earth and sky fled away. We can hide our intentions from our fellow man all day long. We can be insincere and make false professions of faith and be a good person or what looks like a good person, but ultimately God is the only judge of righteousness. At the great white throne judgment, there won't be any ability for us to hide. There will be no bushes to cower behind. There will be no looking past anyone because sky and earth will pass away. God will look at the intentions of our hearts and all the things that we did. The books will be open that record the events. The chronicles, similar to that which is found in Esther, the chronicles of our lives will be read before us. And that will be indictment enough to cast us into hell. Loved ones, your name are is written in those books. If it wasn't for the book of life, we would be with the masses cast into the lake of fire. The book of life, recorded at the foundation of the world. If you've been saved, has your name in it. 
book of life that the Lamb holds is the book that records that you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you said, even though I deserve to go to hell, I don't believe that's where I'm going because a righteous man stood in my place at Golgotha. Just like Haman and the bag over his head, there will be no argument, no time for defense. This is not a court like we would see in our world today. There will be no argument, no defense, because there will be no hiding. There will be no uncertainty. It won't be necessary because God sees through all of the facades that we put up and he knows all. There will be nowhere for us to hide unless we are in Christ. God's judgment will be executed with finality. In the same way that as the king ordered that Haman should be hung or hanged on the very gallow or gallows that he had built for Mordecai, his judgment will come with certainty. There will be no opportunity for appeal. There will be no holding period. You can't spend time in the prison library and look up how you might get around God's law because it is so perfect, you've already violated it. Without Christ, there is no salvation. This isn't just doom and gloom. This is why it matters that we respond to God. The great white throne judgment will be held with Everyone you've ever known, your loved ones, your kindred, your friends, your colleagues, you'll hear all the secrets you never wanted to hear. And if their name's not recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, they will be cast into a lake of fire. The only hope for anyone, the only hope and the only hero being God is because he's the only one that has the ability to save us from that. Even though we don't deserve it, he's the only hero that can do what we'll never be able to do. Judgment is coming. Will you wait to warn the people that you love? Or will you agree with me that the time to respond is now? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray that you be with us as we dismiss our discussion. I pray that you be with us as we seek your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.